You look at the Old Testament and what God says that he wants for his people, and you will hear in Exodus chapter 19 that God wants for his people to be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. By the time we get to the book of Judges, we see a description of a people that are not experiencing what God wants for his people. When it comes to how they're living, they're spiraling out of control. When it comes to the knowledge of God's word, it is becoming less and less. When it comes to just, just being a people who is responsive to God, they don't really care what he has to say because they've replaced God and his word with doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And it is spiraled out of control. We get to this last story in the book of Judges, and we're not really even talking about a judge in the book of Judges. We're talking about a nation who has gone into chaos because they have chosen again and again and again to do whatever's right in their own eyes. Now, this final story, I'm going to share with you an edited version. That is not because I don't want you to read it. I want you to read the whole thing. It's just that this story, above all the other stories, requires some editing because of the graphic nature of the story. Even when I try to edit a little bit and give you the story in summary, it is going to be graphic. Even though I'm trying to change it in a way that, you know, moms and dads, little kids in here won't freak out, um, it's still graphic. I can't tell the story and escape some of the graphic elements. That's on purpose. Like the story is written to be so graphic that our hearts and minds are completely arrested by the graphic nature of the story and that we are left in absolute horror of what happens to a people when they consistently do what is right in their own eyes. So I'm going to share the story with you. We're going to read a few passages through the story, but I, my hope is that you will read it and you'll be struck by the intensity of this story and you will never again forget the message that doing what is right in your own eyes will never ever work so let's look at chapter 19 starting in verse 1 chapter 19 verse 1 says now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah you don't have to read past verse 1 to realize we are not headed down a good path here. Starts out with there's no king in Israel. That's been a phrase that we've seen multiple times through Judges, emphasizing the fact that nobody wants anybody ruling their life whatsoever because they are very happy doing whatever's right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Then you have a Levite who's supposed to lead God's people to follow the Lord, to align themselves with him, and he is definitely going in a direction that the Lord does not want for his people. He gets a concubine for himself, and whatever happens in that situation, the, the lady decides she doesn't want any more of it, and she goes back home. So about four months later, the Levite decides, I'm going to go back, I'm going to get her from her, from her home. So she, he makes a trip down there and is approached by his, what the Bible calls father-in-law, using that term very loosely here. Uh, and the father-in-law says, come on in. They welcome him in. They have several days of hanging out together. And by day four, the, the Levite's like, I'm ready to get home. I want to take um, your daughter and I want to go home. 
the, the father-in-law is not having him. He says, no, one more day. And he convinces him to stay. And on day five, by the end of the day, the Levi's like, that's enough. We're going home. And they pack up and they begin to go home. It's so late in the day that they're going to have to stay somewhere en route to home during the night. They come to a city of choice. Like they choose this particular city because the Levite doesn't want to stay in a place that's not inhabited by, by Israelites. He was going to stay in a foreign territory. It's not safe there. So he's going to go to a territory that's inhabited by his kinsmen. And this particular city that he chooses is Gibeah. And it's inhabited by the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the family groups in the nation of Israel. He says, let's stay in Gibeah. They go into Gibeah. They make their way into the town square. And they can find no one who will invite them into their home. They have no place to go. And they wait. And they wait. And finally, an old man comes in after working all day long. He comes in and he sees them sitting there and he inquires of them where they're from, where they're going. Turns out that the old man and the Levite are from the same hometown, the hill country of Ephraim. The old man invites them into his home. They go in there, they begin to hang out together and he shares food with them and they're having a great time just getting to know each other. And then all of a sudden this loud knock comes on the door and a group from the city has gathered together outside the door and they are now demanding of the old man that he turn over the Levite to them so they can do whatever they want to do with him for the rest of the evening. Hence, edited version. The Levite comes up with a solution that will protect himself. And he gives to the mob of people outside the door his concubine. And they do unspeakable things to her. I mean, think about that. For an individual who is supposed to know how to lead people to follow God, to believe that's a solution, that ought to be shocking. But that's what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. At the end of the night, that morning, the woman crawls back to the door and collapses at the threshold of the door. The Levite apparently gets ready in the morning and the first thing he does he, to leave goes and opens the door and right there at the door is this woman. And this is his first reaction. He says to her, get up, let's go. How, how do you get to that place? He then takes her lifeless body because she's unresponsive. He takes her lifeless body and places her on his donkey. And he takes her home. When he gets home, he takes that lifeless body and he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends the parts of her body out into the nation. 12 different tribes. And the nation reacts just like we're reacting right now. At the end of chapter 19, this is the reaction of the nation. Verse 30, all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. We have never seen anything this bad. As messed up as Israel was, 
because they were doing what was right in their own eyes, ignoring and disregarding God, they still knew this was wrong. And they wanted to fix it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Then all the sons of Israel came from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The whole nation of Israel, short of Benjamin, gathers together and says, what are we going to do about this? The Levite tells his story, and the reaction is, we're going to raise an army, and we're going to go in and wipe out Gibeah. But we'll give them a chance. We'll send an envoy in there and say, will you give up the guys who are responsible for this, and then we'll fix it that way. But Gibeah says no. We're not giving up any of ours. And all of a sudden, we're in civil war. And 400,000 Israelites gird for war. And 26,000 of Gibeah, the Benjamites, are prepared for war. And we're going to battle. And in this story, you got to think, 400,000 Israelites, 26,000 Benjamites, the Benjamites are going to be in bad shape. Surprisingly, Israel actually inquires of the Lord. And the Lord says to Israel, Judah should lead the way in going out to battle. I'm sure Israel is excited at that moment, having direction from the Lord. They, they get Judah in the front, and they head out to battle. And in day one, the record of casualties among Benjamin is zero. The record of casualties among Israel, the 400,000, is 22,000. This is not day one expectation by Israel. They didn't go into this thinking that they would be absolutely wiped out almost one for one for the people they were facing. 400,000 to 26,000 and 22,000 in Israel are killed. What went wrong? Well, they come back and they begin to cry before the Lord and seek Him and weep before Him and asking, should we go up again? And the Lord says, yes, you should go up. And they go up the next day and it's more of the same. 18,000 Israelites are listed as casualties. Zero casualties are listed for Benjamin. Well, the people of Israel come back to the Lord and now they're fasting, now they're weeping, now they're offering offerings and burnt offerings to the Lord, asking the Lord, what should we do? And the Lord says, tomorrow things will be different. Israel goes out the next day and they are very different. Gibeah is now wiped out. The Benjamites are decimated. The only people that survive, I mean, the town is burned. Everybody is wiped out. Everybody, livestock, families, everybody. The only people that survive are 600 men who fled from the battle and escaped. 600. This is not what God wanted for his people. Not at all. This is what happens in a nation when all they do is whatever is right in their own eyes. They self-destruct. They are absolutely bewildered at what this means for them because now Benjamin, one of their family groups, has no way to continue to be a tribe in the nation of Israel because they all pledged when they gathered together to go against them in war. They all pledged, we will not give a daughter in Israel to anybody in Benjamin as a wife. No matter who survives, they're not getting a single person from us. Well, then they realized when they did that that they essentially dictated the end of an entire tribe. And they were bewildered over this. This broke their heart. And they're, we've got to come up with a solution. We've got to find another solution to fix what we know is wrong. 
And so it dawned on them that when they all gathered together to talk about what to do, there was a group there that did not actually go out and fight. Jabez Gilead was not there in the fighting. Well, we all pledged our lives. If we didn't come and fight, then we would give up our lives for that. We gave a strong promise to be there. Jabesh Gilead wasn't there. Here's the solution. Let's go kill all of them and take all the women that are left over that have never been married and give them to the sons of Benjamin as their new wives. What? This is a solution? Yeah, it met with approval. And they went and did it. They wiped out another tire city and they took the women that had been married there and they gave them to the sons of Benjamin so they'd actually have wives. Think about that. Is that not insane? They ended up with 400 women who'd never been married. So if you do the math, they still need 200 more women. We got another problem. How about let's fix this problem? I tell you what, there's a festival of the Lord at Shiloh and a lot of unmarried women participate in that festival. Why don't you guys in Benjamin that don't have a wife just kind of hide around the perimeter and when one of those unmarried women comes up, you run out, kidnap her and force her to be your wife. That sounds like a great solution. And they do it. How in the world does this happen in a nation? Because when a nation does what is right in their own eyes, when God's people choose to do what is right in their own eyes, it brings about destruction, chaos, and self-devastation. And they are ravaged, broken, and bankrupt. There's simply no way that I have enough time to talk through all that's wrong in this story. I mean, literally, I've, in my notes and preparation, I've got so many tangents I could run on this thing, and I cannot do them all, but what I've got to make sure that we walk away with today is the impact of this last description of God's people in chapter 21, verse 25, the only appropriate ending to the story. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's nobody in the people of God that wanted God as their king. They didn't want a king at all. They wanted just to continue to do what was right in their own eyes. And it devastated and destroyed the nation. I'm so grateful that the end of Judges is not the end of the story. Do you know the very next book in the Old Testament is Ruth? The very next book in the Old Testament follows Judges is Ruth. And, and the first line in Ruth, setting the setting, the story, the scene of this story, says in those days, it came about in those days when the judges governed. The very first line in the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, sets the stage for the darkest point in Israel's history, the time of the judges. And the very next phrase is, there was a famine in the land. Now, we know that's a physical famine, but we certainly understand after studying judges, this is a spiritual famine in every sense of the word. Everything is broken in Israel. And this one little family leaves the land God gave them in Bethlehem of Judah and they go to Moab, a foreign land they're not supposed to live in. They say, God's land's not good for us anymore. We're going to find a solution that is right in our own eyes. They go to Moab. They begin to build a family there. Their sons marry uh, wives there. They begin to build this family. And next thing you know, devastation breaks that family and disintegrates them. 
Because when you do what's right in your own eyes, that's what happens. Naomi comes home, and when she gets home, she tells people, don't call me Naomi anymore. You call me bitter, because that's who I am. Now, along with her came her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a story about Ruth meeting a man named Boaz who rescues her from the brokenness that they found in the the land of Moab. And he marries Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz have a little boy. And they name that little boy Obed. And Obed grows up and becomes a dad, gets married, becomes a dad. And they name his boy Jesse. Jesse grows up, he gets married, and he and his wife have a little boy, and they name him David. David. In the darkest days of the judges, God's mercy had not run out. And he brought forth this story of a man and woman meeting and them having a baby who would become the grandfather of the king that God would say, I have sought you out and I have pointed you king because you are a man after my own heart. This is the man God gave a promise to who was king over his people. He said, to your descendant, I will give a throne that is my throne. I will give a kingdom that is my kingdom and he will reign over that kingdom forever. God made a promise that he He would send a king who would provide righteous, just ruling over his people and would issue forth forgiveness of their sins because he would be their king and their savior. Israel needed a king and God would make good on his plan to give them exactly what they needed. We've gathered in this place together and we are keenly aware that we have a lot more in common with the people and judges than we'd like to have in common with them. The Bible says of each one of us that every single one of us has done what is right in our own eyes. We've gone our own way. We've turned away from God. We've sinned against Him. We are all, every one of us, guilty of turning away from God and doing what's right in our own eyes. And we find ourselves in the same place as the Israelites. We need a king. And God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you and for me to be that king. Do you know how the New Testament begins? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we hear the first words in the New Testament. This is the genealogical record of Jesus, the anointed one, the king, the son of David. And we see this son of David rise to a position of such authority that he could then lay down his life for us on the cross so that if any of us decide we want to trust him, he would forgive us of all our sin. We need a king, and our king is Jesus Christ. And he is the one that has offered you life. Everything you want, everything you hope for, everything you aspire for is found in Jesus Christ. He is the king we all need. It's Him. If you're here this morning, you've never made the decision to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the King you need. If you're here this morning and you've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever find yourself struggling 
with something in your life that you know is just not right? You ever, you ever been there struggling with something in your life that you know is just not right and you want to fix it? You want to make it better? We've all been there, haven't we? Maybe your struggle has been in the area of anger. Maybe you have a neighbor that's really ticked you off. Maybe you got a coworker you just don't like. They've really made you upset. Maybe you got a family member that every Thanksgiving and Christmas you curse holidays because you're so angry at them. And what you've decided to do, because you know that anger is not good for you, it's not good for those you're around, you know something's not right with being that angry. And so you make a decision that you're just going to avoid that person. If it's your neighbor, you always check before you go outside by looking through the window to make sure they're not in the front yard so you won't have to have an encounter with them and then come back in and treat your whole family terrible as the target of your anger because you can't do it to your neighbor. So you're always checking to make sure they're in the yard. Maybe it's your coworker, and instead of walking the normal way to your office, you maybe walk down a different hallway to make sure you avoid them. You're, you're trying to fix the problem because you figure that's better than just being angry. Or maybe you struggle in the area of lust. Maybe that's been your struggle, and you know in the moments that you've looked at pornography that that moment was not right. You know it. It's clear. And you want something better. You want to fix that, and so maybe you get one of those software things for your computer, the filter. Maybe you join an accountability group because you want things to be different. Or maybe your struggle is in the area of the stuff that you have. And you found yourself wanting stuff so much so that the only way you can get the stuff that you want is to buy it on credit. And now you have so much debt that you can't even give to the Lord. You can't help other people around you that are in need. You, you, you can't do anything. And in fact, your daily decisions are being made not because you're concerned about what God's plan is for your life, your daily decisions are being made because you've got to make decisions that result in paying your bills. You're a slave to the debt. You're like, I know this is wrong. This cannot be right. And so you sign up for a financial course. You determine to make a budget. Or, or maybe your struggle is food. And you're not sure exactly what it means to be a glutton. And you certainly don't want to be the first one to admit that you are. But you know that something with you and food is just not right. You, don't, you know it feels like this is not right. The way I eat, the way I handle food, I know that's not right. And so you're going to go about making a better way. And so you went to the grocery store last week and you bought a, a ton of vegetables, like a whole cart full. You stuck them in your refrigerator with good intentions and now they're rotting. You wanted to fix it. You had a plan. Or, or maybe your struggle has been fill in the blank. Just, just fill in the blank. Are you relating with me on this? Because I feel like I, this is where we all live, right? We all live struggling with our lives and what's going on, and we want to fix what we sense is wrong in our lives. And I want to encourage you this morning that any attempt at your life to fix something you believe is wrong in your life that does not start and finish with Jesus Christ being your king will simply be a modification of behavior that ends up being doing what is right in your own eyes and will prove to be no solution at all. We all struggle. We all want things in our life to be fixed. 
but you can't find the solution outside of what God has prescribed. You can try. You can try a lot of stuff. You can have temporary moments of moving forward, but I'm going to tell you right now, if it does not involve making Jesus Christ king over your life, you will not end up with what you wanted and what God wants for your life. I want to tell you about my own life. The first time in my life that this really drove home for me is back when I was a teenager. And my struggle at that point in my life was anger. I was vehemently angry at my mom and dad for divorcing. So angry. On top of that, I got really mad at my mom because she went off and married a guy who was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and an abusive man. Brought him into our home. I was really mad at that one. And then the bottom line, I was mad at God because he let it all happen. And I was just an angry, self-righteous punk. But you know what I knew? I knew in my heart that something wasn't right with my anger. No matter how justified I felt in being angry, no matter how right I was compared to their wrong, I knew something was wrong about my anger. And you know what I discovered? I could not resolve it. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't make it go away. It started to control my life. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that the moment I came to Jesus Christ and I said to him, the problem that I have in my life is not primarily the fact that my mom and dad split up. It's not primarily that my mom has trashed our home. It's not primarily about anything that's been happening to me. My chief problem, Lord, is that my heart is angry and sinful toward you. And I need to confess my sin to you, and I need you to be the king over my life. I don't want to be the king over my life anymore. I don't want to try to do this the way that I think I should do it. I don't want to try to fix my problems. I want you to be my king. Until I made the decision that I wanted Jesus Christ to rule my life, that he was a good and right king, I couldn't see my way out of the anger. But the moment I said to Jesus Christ, you are the rightful king who alone can deliver me. You are my savior, and you are the one to reign and rule over my life, I began to see differently. You know what I began to see? I began to see that God could take the brokenness and the pain of what I lived through and so transform my own heart that I could then be a blessing to people who were broken and in pain because of what they lived through. I began to see that God could take a situation with my mom where I despised her for what she did and instead look at her with thanksgiving and love because of what God did with her brokenness in my life so much so that I could be thankful for her. When I submitted Jesus Christ as king over my life and realized what kind of king he is, I found that every reason I had to be angry just drifted away into non-reality because it was now defining my life as who God is and what he promises and it changed changed my life. Totally changed my life. When I did that, I could begin to see how am I supposed to live and act in these circumstances. If nothing ever changes, how should I be changed by the love of God so that I am an absolute conduit for people to see the love of Christ? I, it just totally changed my life. That's not the only time I've struggled. All through my life, I've encountered new struggles, new moments of knowing something's not right in my life. In college, 
That was the time when my struggle with lust was at its all-time high. I had to decide, do I want Jesus to be king over my life? When Lindley and I first got married, you know what reared its ugly head? And I hate this. But all of that habit of anger just reared its ugly head, and I was so mean to Lindley. And it wasn't until about 10 years into our marriage that God completely broke me. And I came in my brokenness and I said to the Lord, I am my own worst enemy. And I need you to be king over my life because I'm tired of justifying what I know is wrong. And I need you to fix me. And all of a sudden, God's rule and reign over my life began to transform me from the inside out. Whatever you're struggling with today, whatever brokenness you've stepped into, whatever darkness you've been walking in, you are never too far gone for God's grace to touch you in this moment. He loves you. And he wants something for you that you may not yet have tasted I want to tell you the only way you will taste and see that the Lord is good is if you yield to him as king. You've got to make him king. You've got to make a decision that he's going to be the king of your life. I can look back over my life. Lindley and I can look back over her life and we can see the moments of greatest transformation and life change in our lives came in those moments when God said, do you want me to be king? Or do you want to keep doing what's right in your own eyes? And we just laid our lives down before him and said, we want you to be king. Our lives were changed. Is Jesus the king of your life? Don't miss Jesus today. He loves you. He's given his life for you. And he knows what he wants for you. And it's far better than anything you can ever get by doing what's right in your own eyes. Don't miss out on his word. If you walk away with anything from the study of Judges, you ought to walk away with the fact that we cannot make it without Jesus Christ as our King and His Word as our guide. He has given you this great gift, and it's in this gift He has unveiled to you all that you need to know about Him so that your thoughts and your beliefs and your attitudes and your actions are aligned with His good rule, and you experience the favor of having Jesus Christ as your King. It's all right here. You cannot live your life neglecting this book and enjoy the good rule of Jesus over your life. Don't miss out on the word. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I want Jesus as my king. I want King Jesus. I want him to rule over my life. I want him to reign over my life. But you know what? I don't know him very well. This would be a new thing for me. And when it comes to God's word, I wouldn't know what to look at. In fact, I don't have a clue what you're saying when you say Old Testament and New Testament. I thought it was all good. You're just like, what does this mean? Listen, I want to tell you about another gift that God has provided for you right here in this moment. Because he is a good king. He's given you the gift of the church. Because if you walked into this place and your struggle is with anger, you know that's something not right in your life and you need rescuing. Guess what? 
somebody sitting really close to you this morning, right there where you're sitting, who has struggled with anger and has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ as King, who struggled to align their heart with what God says, and they have found the way out of the destruction of anger into the forgiveness and freedom of Jesus Christ ruling their life. They know the way out, and guess what? They are ready to help somebody else find the way. I cannot tell you how redemptive it is in my own life the moments when God takes my previous brokenness and helps somebody else find life. And there are people right here who have struggled with, with anger and lust and materialism and gluttony and whatever else you want to call. Whatever your struggle is, there's somebody sitting in this room this morning who's been there, who has surrendered their life to Jesus as King, and they're ready to help you. Don't miss out on Jesus Christ's good rule over your life. And don't miss out on the transformation of his word. And don't miss a church family who can walk faithfully with you. You don't want to miss it. My prayer is that as a result of this study through Judges, it would be written of us in this moment in the days of First Baptist Georgetown, there was a king in their lives, and his name was Jesus.